Hello, and welcome to another episode of Reframe Your Brain. Starting with episode 11, Danielle Kent and I are doing something different. Each week, we'll be sharing conversations with a variety of people talking about what they're reframing in this challenging and pivotal time of COVID-19. If you want to share a story about something that you're reframing, reach out to us on Instagram at Reframe Your Brain. Good morning, Sean. Hi. Uh, would you introduce yourself for our listeners, please? Sure. I'm Sean, and I am a speech and language pathologist. I live in Montpelier in Vermont. So uh, before we turned on the recording, we were just talking a little bit about the questions that I usually ask people on the podcast. And I like to start off with just opening up sort of a general question of what have you been reframing or rethinking, um, you know, reconsidering any of those sort of terms in the last month and a half since um, we've, you know, things have changed so dramatically for us. Um. So obviously it's tempting to talk about work because everybody has had to rejigger the way they do work, but I, I'm going to resist the temptation and talk <laughs> about something else because there's just so much other stuff that's interesting. I think my work is also really interesting, but I'd like to choose to talk about um, a couple other things. So yeah. I, I got picked up this book before the whole COVID-19 thing, blossomed called how to be an anti-racist by yes candy mm -hmm. and already i had liked to think of myself as somebody who is not a racist mm -hmm. and the book really really opened my eyes to sort of thinking about things in a different way and one of the points that he makes um is that it is not really an option to just think of yourself as not a racist. Like you said, because racism is so saturated in our society and in the structures of power and the policies that get put into place, that it makes more sense to think of yourself as being sort of part of the racist system mm -hmm. or um, or an anti-racist, and that if you're sort of passively just coasting along, especially as a white person, mm -hmm. um, that you're you're drifting towards that racist side of things because mm -hmm. you're participating and you're benefiting from all of the things that go along with the way um, power has been distributed and policies have been written over the past. 300 years yeah um and so i i also had just recently read a super fiction book um called the water dancer mm -hmm. um, that um was another eye-opening book on um life as a black person in the south prior to the civil war and it it had a few um, it was a fiction book but, mm -hmm. so it, it also had a few elements of magical realism in it but mm -hmm. i think as a fiction book it really 
um, told a super poignant, um, vivid, touching story, and it allowed you to live into that world in a way that you don't do as much when you're reading a nonfiction book. So those two books really complemented each other um, in a pretty cool way, even though really they're completely different from each mm -hmm. other. One's a contemporary nonfiction book. And, uh, and yeah, the Water Dancer was just published in, I just looked it up because I knew it was recently, um, but it was just in the, in September of 2019. Uh, what? How old is the the first book that you showed? Will you say the title yeah, again? Yeah, it is called "How to Be an Anti-Racist" by mm -hmm. Ibram X. Kendi, mm -hmm. published in 2019 as well. So they're both okay. published at the same time. Um, and I hadn't ever read anything by Ibram Kendi before, whereas I'd read several things by Tanahisi Coates before, who's the mm -hmm. author of The Water Dancer. Yeah. Although everything I'd read by Tanahisi Coates had been, had been um, nonfiction. Mm -hmm. My daughter, who's uh, 20 and in college, bought me The Water Dancer for Christmas. So oh. I, I just showed up. Um, yeah. And um, I didn't have to go out and choose it because I, I become afflicted with major indecisiveness when I walk into a bookstore, but she, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can relate. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm so glad she did because it was a fantastic book, like one of the best books I've read last year. I'm really glad to hear you. Well, I'm glad to hear a couple of things that you're saying. The first is that I have been sort of eyeing that book and it's on a list of books that I've been considering getting, especially now that I'm home and um, feel like, uh, well, I, Reading for me, to be honest, after finishing grad school was a really difficult thing to enjoy. And I finished, you know, to give you some context, I've been out of grad school since 2011. Um, and it's really just in the last year that I've been able to like, be um, present enough when I'm reading any kind of book to to recognize whether I'm enjoying it or not. Cause I had been like the world of academia had trained me so well to just like fly through things, get to the point. What's Soak the up the information. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, um, and so I really, I've been looking for things to read that I feel are, are going to, that are really well written, that are really like purposeful. And mm -hmm. that uh, the water dancer has been one of those one I, one I've been considering. Um, you know, you go know ahead. just to give you another sense of how, how good it is, often, like you, I have trouble carving out time to read mm. for pleasure. And so I have a, a stack of books on my bedside table. And the book before The Water Dancer took me like a year to get through it <laughs> because I'd start reading when I got in bed and I'm exhausted and it's late and I've just finished all the chores and paying bills and everything. And like I read for maybe a page and then I'm like what? I have to fall asleep yeah and so it took me a year but I plowed through the water dancer in like um two weeks or something it was it was um the kind of thing that just didn't feel like, like work like I enjoyed it and oh. it was as as restful as being a couch potato and watching <laughs> exactly. um if that's even <laughs> I, 
I, one of the things that came up while you were talking about reading these two books and thinking about the difference between being anti-racist versus, you know, not being, this idea of not being racist um, is uh, a podcast that um, I have really learned a lot from and has been a source of um, a number of great resources. It's called the Good Ancestor Podcast. And it's um, produced by a woman named Layla Saad, who lives in Dubai, I believe. Um, I might be that wrong about that. She might live in, mm, don't quote me on that part. Um, but the podcast is incredible because it talks with all sorts of people, mostly um, people of color around the world who are involved in sort of social change and like change making. And a lot of what comes up is, you know, addressing these really like ingrained patterns of white supremacy and this idea of like what you were saying that it's not enough especially as a white person to just say i'm not racist or to coast along like yeah. them that there needs to be an active dialogue and active work around dismantling um the these like what are they called um these biases that we aren't aware of or that we are aware of, especially. Um, and she has interviewed some incredible, um, I, I wanna say all women. I don't remember listening to an episode that um, had a man that she interviewed, which adds another level, I think, to the conversation. Um, and she was someone who talked about the water dancer. Um, uh. and she also has a book that she's written called me and white supremacy, I think is the title of it. And it's really like, um, a book designed for people who are wanting to examine their own biases and really work on addressing those and finding ways to, to, to like be an ally and be, um, you know, show up for people who have who don't have the privilege that you and I might have or um whose life experiences and and like lineage you know their their heritage is also full of trauma and sure. hardship and how to sort of still engage with each other and be you know create co-creating and value each other um it's a super rich, rich podcast. Um, I talk, yeah. of, I've mentioned it before, I think. And for people who've listened to this podcast before, it, um, it might sound familiar, but I just, it's been one of the most, um, she's a writer and the way she speaks is just so articulate and so eloquent um, and so kind. You know, I think that that comes through very strongly. Um, That's great. That sounds really nice. I've, bookmarked it already yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what tell me a little Not bit <laughs> no that's okay I mean I was looking up book titles while you were talking um tell me a little bit about how reading these books what does that you know 
um, when you're thinking about reframing, how are those two things coming together for you now? These ideas around anti-racism. Right. Or, um, well, you mentioned the issue of gender too, and I, that's come forward to me in a big way as well. It's, it's always been something that I care about because I am somebody who, I'm a, a man and I don't um, think of myself as being fitting very well with the um, stereotype of what it means to be a man in Western society. And I, that used to bother me when I was a teenager or a kid. And mm. now actually it's a point of, of um, I'm, I'm happy about it. And I am, I'm pretty resentful and irritated by the expectations and the constraints that get put on men. And of course, I'm also irritated um, by the behavior of a lot of men because, um, you know, obviously if you look around and see who's doing all the murdering and who's responsible for most of the environmental degradation, <clears throat> who's writing these racist policies, the answer is generally men. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's a little, uh, it's a little, a sort of tender spot of mine to be both a member of the gender that has major issues that need to get worked out and also um, somebody who has always chafed against those. Mm. Um, and so in, in almost every way you can measure, I'm sort of part of the dominant segment of society, a mm. cisgendered, heterosexual, largely heterosexual, I suppose, um, white man. Um, and so it's been a, a, quite a long journey of discovery to, to like try to reconcile um, being okay with who I am mm. um, and also not um, being blind to what's being perpetrated on other people and on society mm -hmm. by people who have the kind of privilege that I um, that I either have or that I could have if I, if right. I exercised it. Mm -hmm. um, um, so I I'm happen to be reading two nonfiction books right now because of the aforementioned difficulty with decisiveness. And so I have, also, this one here called The Descent of Man mm -hmm. by Grayson Perry. There are a lot of books on, on being a man, masculinity, manhood, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and some of them are good. I have read a couple others, but I like this one a lot. This guy is a, a British. Um, that's the picture of him on the cover. <laughs> He does sure. have sort of a quintessential 70s British hair yeah, style going on. Yeah, I think that on. was a deliberate choice <laughs> mm -hmm. on his part. Um, <laughs> and um, so in a lot of ways, he's also part of the mainstream culture. He's, he's bisexual and he's a transvestite, enjoys dressing up in women's clothes. And that he feels like gave him a, a little bit of a window to what it, what it, what the expectations are for a, for a boy growing into be a man. And, mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of toxicity that goes along with the expectations of what you are supposed to be as a man. Um, 
a lot of this expectation that you should be strong and decisive um, and have a degree of power, whether that's financial power or social power. I mean, I think in our society, those two things are almost identical. Like yeah. it's, you, those things are, are pretty much synonymous at this point. Yeah. Um, and um, so there's blowback as a man when you don't choose those things mm -hmm. from other men. And sometimes to a, to a lesser extent or to an irregular extent from other women, from mm -hmm. our own mothers or wives or partners, mm -hmm. um, girlfriends. Um, and um, so, and then in my own personal life, there's there's been a transformation too because I have a child who's been questioning their gender and is not using the same gender that they were assigned at birth. And mm -hmm. that was also a really, really big um, transformation in my thinking about gender. Mm -hmm. And again, it's sort of like what I mentioned with the anti-racism book. Um, I had already been thinking of myself as somebody who was tolerant of, of all forms of LGBTQ human sexual and gender expression. And yet it became real in a different way when my own, at the time, son mm -hmm. told me that they were not a boy, they didn't feel like a boy. Mm -hmm. And that, especially I think with me being a father, um, felt like, I felt at first I felt almost betrayed by society because I felt like there was this sense that if you're a boy and if you don't feel like a stereotypical boy, macho, uh, active, um, competitive, hyper-competitive, mm -hmm. you know, contact sports inclined, um, then you're not good enough and right. then you should be a girl. Mm -hmm. And um, I was wrong about that. I don't think that was the issue. Um, but the timing was um, the timing was awkward and, and it was at a time when the Me Too movement was really at its peak like a year and a half ago and you could barely even turn on the radio without hearing stories about yet another man in power behaved like an asshole or mm -hmm. a criminal mm -hmm. both um, <laughs> and I felt like mm -hmm. um, it, um, well now in retrospect I realized that this is sort of a selfish way to think it felt like like the um, a hard time for an adolescent boy who already had questions about gender to be um, coming into adulthood Mm. Um, of course, I also recognize that the, that the portrayals on the media of, you know, black men or black women are also unflattering and have been for decades. And yeah. so it's not like it's a, a, we're relatively, we white men are relatively recent arrivals at the, at the, at the port of, um, 
um, unflattering betrayals. Um, <laughs> not betrayals, portrayals. I, I like that um, uh, description. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So anyways, that was, that was another thing that caused me to have to expand my thinking on, on issues of um, gender and sexuality. And yeah. um, so your original question was, what, <laughs> what have you been like recalibrating or what have you been yeah. re reconsidering? I think any, any of those words, uh, you know, yeah. recalibrating is definitely relevant. I, I think a lot of what you're describing, you know, navigating experiences that are exceptionally novel for you and um and your child and um within you know there's different layers of that and you sort of calibrate to what that looks like in your family unit and then you recalibrate to what that looks like for your family unit within like your you know social circle and then within a larger you know there's like mm -hmm. sort of continual levels of I think recalibration is a really great yeah. word um, and adjusting and sort of um, reflecting, like you said, you know, your initial responses in retrospect, you, you have a different opinion about, or you can, you can um, appreciate that what your reaction was initially was based on certain things and with some distance from that initial experience, see that there are so many other, it's such a, a larger, more complex yeah, experience. Yeah. It's, it's so funny because a lot of the time, all this, all this thinking and all this um, listening and reading can all boil down to something that sounds so pithy as to be almost not very useful. Like, for example, the idea that maybe you should just listen to mm. people. Mm -hmm. And so when I was originally doing all this sort of anguished soul searching about what in society is going on that would cause um, my daughter to need to feel this way, um, when, when I finally, finally sort of stopped all that chatter in my head and basically the analogy I like to use is that I'd like choose to take my hand off the steering wheel and try to stop stop trying to direct mm. where where things are going mm -hmm. for her and just listen then i think you come to a better truth and i think that's the case one of the takeaways that i've taken from the how to be an anti-racist mm -hmm. book or um some of the arguments that grayson perry makes in, in the book the descent of man where um, about what what the, what's going to have to happen in society in order for us to have a more equitable society, like what what we men are going to need to do in order for a society to be more equitable, um, um, can can boil down to the act of actually just listening to somebody and not being defensive and not arguing or following up what they said with a yes but mm -hmm. type of comment um, mm -hmm. and um, the 
it, it also gets at, I think, what, what I've experienced as the sort of the limits of empathy. And I have always thought of myself as being an empathetic person, mm -hmm. sort of intrinsically. Um, and I don't need to experience everything myself in order to know the truth in it. Like if I talk to a black woman about her experience, I, I can empathize with, with certain uh, of her experiences. And that's a good thing, right? I don't want to have to break my leg in order to imagine that it's probably painful to break your leg. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I don't need to live in destitute poverty in order to know that that is a problem. But reading these books has also opened my mind to things that you don't think about when you're not experiencing that actual lived experience. Yeah. Um, and that in order to really expand your empathy, in order to truly be empathetic, you do have to listen to people because there's a limit to the imagination that you use when you're when you're empathetic. Um, mm -hmm. And so I guess it's both of those things that have to happen, both the sort of active listening and and going out of your way to um, to trust people and to let them expand your sense of empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes me think a little bit about um, a couple of things. The when Danielle Kent and I, who's the um, she and I co-host and collaborate around this podcast, um, when she and I initially started recording these episodes, they were really focused on the challenges of of creative of thinking creatively within um, structures that really are not designed don't they, they're not designed with creativity in mind you know they're there <laughs> to put it kindly I think um, <laughs> if anything sometimes they're designed almost to prevent creativity you know they're they're designed to for consistency and efficiency and conformity and measurement and things. And it can be really challenging to work within those settings and find those places that you can bring, you know, that creativity. And I think by extension, the, the empathy that you're describing and not feel like you're constantly bumping up against these limitations of the environment that you're in. Um, and I was also, so that was one thought that, you know, just how pervasive that experience is across so many people's lives, whether it's work or not. And that feeling of um, confinement from like our, our societal structures. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking about is right now, you know, when a lot of, when, when the schools in Vermont first closed and people were really just like losing their minds about how they would work from home and take care of their kids and like access to food and access to, you know, resources in general, there, there, um, there was this moment that I had, you know, in trying to sort of empathize with like 
I, I don't have those challenges. I don't have young children at home. I can conveniently work from home and, and often prefer it. Um, and, you know, and wanting to recognize like, this is a huge struggle for so many people. There was a piece of me that was sort of reminded of like my own childhood and growing up and the limited resources we had you know we didn't have internet until I was in high school we didn't have like a grocery store you know the way that um we the frequency with which we accessed things that many people I know access on a daily basis was just very different mm -hmm. and our level of comfort financially and you know emotionally was very different and I had this moment of like, oh, I, I actually feel kind of well prepared for this sort of challenging experience because it doesn't seem completely unfamiliar to me. Yeah. And when I realized that and realized that some of the people that I was seeing struggle the most grew up in these like wonderful, you know, loving, environments where like anything they needed they they had they had and yeah. as adults to be experiencing um something different than that was just so disorienting from them and as parents to be experiencing that and figuring out how to model that for how to model behave you know managing through that for their kids was like just their brains just couldn't process it and that question of empathy that you were talking about I was really having to sort of navigate that in a new way and empathize for people whose experiences that like as an adult, I have a better understanding of what probably their childhoods were like, but it still is like this very, it's a distant concept to me, you know, because I didn't experience what they experienced and I can appreciate it. And it's, it's challenging to to figure out like to, there's nothing else to do except to listen like you were saying listen to what their struggles are and let them you know yeah. have some place to talk um that yeah yeah i think that's super perceptive and i think the other thing that is nice about true listening is it involves trust mm -hmm. um, like that i trust that what you're saying is true for you and mm -hmm. maybe is true in general. Right. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lack of trust. When, earlier in what you were just saying, you were talking about how we have these, these structures and, and policies and they, they restrict what you can do and when you can do it. Mm -hmm. and, um, I, I think that that's super interesting because it, it I think, largely is because there's this top-down lack of trust of yeah. people lower down on the totem pole, and mm -hmm. we're going to sort of micromanage who does what. Here's an interesting little specific example, because I'm, I'm the kind of person who often thinks better by example. Yeah. But my wife's credit card got like compromised, and somebody made a bunch of charges, and we had to call the big Bank of America sort of runs that card and report a fraud. And so Joan, my wife, spends like 45 minutes trying to finally get those charges reversed. 
she finally gets a hold of a live person, which is exceedingly difficult. And then mm. she, they get most but not all of the fraudulent charges reversed. And then she says, and by the way, your website says that you want to help out with COVID-19. And our last credit card payment was two days late because our family had to quarantine in two different places and things were very complicated and we just let that slip through the cracks. Could you reverse that that overdue charge that we mm. got? And the, the person on the phone was like, oh yeah, I'd like to do that, but I can't. Sorry, I'll transfer you to the charge reversal department. And she's like, I've been on the phone for almost an hour. I don't have time to yeah. spend more time. And that's a great example. Like really the person who's a banker who works for Bank of America, who is authorized to reverse charges for fraud, can't also say, hey, let's also get rid of that overdue charge. That mm -hmm. that human being, that the expectation from, from the corporate brass is that that human being does not have the judgment, mm -hmm. the discernment, the ability, the authority to do that because they've been compartmentalized into this tiny little department or this little widget over in this department. Right. And then if you want to have like, this other type of banking transaction, you have to go transfer to another banking department. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, it totally narrows what you feel like you have the ability to do. Um, and yeah, it, yeah I feel like it, it makes you less of a full human being when the people who have power over you um, will not extend that kind of trust yeah. to you. And then, the, the, so then when, when a person is doing what you are doing and listening to somebody whose life experience is really different from your own, then you really, it's, it's an act of will, I think, to have to, ex to extend that trust to somebody because you have this initial sensation of like, well, you know, it's not that bad or like, like whatever it might be. You have this sort of inner monologue happening where you're sort of filtering out what they're saying and saying, uh -huh. oh, except this part is true, but that part probably, wow, they're exaggerating. You know, and <laughs> it's, so, it's so hard to turn that damn little <laughs> internal monologue off and just listen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I have definitely practiced, um, you know, the monologue, the, the, the reactions still happen. I don't say them out loud anymore. <laughs> or at least not the first ones um you know i let a few go by and then de decide like which one of these seems like it fits best and you know is really like my voice and not all those other um you know pieces of me <laughs> responding yeah. yeah and the so there was this interesting um uh podcast episode that i listened to quite a while ago on um, a podcast called Hidden Brain with Shankar Vedantam. The Hidden Brain? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was on power, like and mm. what power does to people. And it's, it was sort of interesting because the, the he interviewed a bunch of different researchers on uh, who, who research um, the, like, the effects of having power. And, and one of the findings that they came up with was that like having power causes you to behave in in different ways than you would if you don't have power 
-hmm. it causes you to behave more decisively to behave more in it with a sense of entitlement mm -hmm. um, uh, and to basically become the person that we kind of identify as being a stereotypical jerk somebody mm -hmm. who is selfish rides roughshod over other people's ideas or thoughts or input um and it's um and it's not just people who've had power for a long time like they did experiments where they gave they took a group of college students and they randomly gave two of the people more power and two of the people less power and right then and there in the room the people with more power started acting that way mm. so it's a very quick and predictable thing and um and so giving somebody power which i think you could argue um like i mentioned before in our society that that is almost synonymous with money having more yeah. money um is going to make a person behave in a certain way and one of the things they're going to do is not listen to other people not value their opinions, not trust them. They're going to feel entitled. They're going to feel like they have this power because mm -hmm. they are smarter, more competent, um, harder working. In fact, all the arguments that you hear people say when you when 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 you have a wealthy person who's who's arguing that you know the capitalism it is as it is currently working is working fine mm -hmm. um, and that. That, that, for example, income inequality or wealth inequality, it's not really a problem. Like if people want to get wealthy, they just do what I did and work hard and be smart. Yeah. Um, so that kind of that kind of thinking still it irritates me. It used to absolutely infuriate me because mm -hmm. the implication, the assumption is that all you all you um, um, serfs out there, all you um, just work harder. Right, that, yeah. that you are where you are because you're stupid and mm -hmm. lazy. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but it's also interesting, I think, because it, it is such a, um, it's such a trap that it's so easy to fall into. And you don't, you don't have to be a wealthy white titan of finance in order <laughs> to fall into that trap. Right. Like, I can fall into it because I have a sort of, sort of middle of the road income and I have a house mm -hmm. and a car. Um, hmm. Yeah. You know, um, this past year I, I have a car right now that's sitting in the driveway um, and hasn't started since October. Um, and I don't think ever will start again. Um, and it was on its, it was on its way out, you know. Um, but when it started to in the fall sort of be, unreliable but but still you know like 75 percent of the time reliable um having a car in vermont is such a necessity and especially i mean even right now like i live in a town and it's still it's such a it we luckily have a, a second car that's my partner's car which i you know um have been the driving <laughs> it's been my car really but um you know if we hadn't had that second vehicle the the stress 
of um, having to repair a car that you know is really not repairable. <laughs> um, and the, uh, like the ramifications of that and the, you know, not being able to get to work or having to move work around. And like, there are these pieces of our lives that if you just take one out, it creates so much instability. And I think about those, you know, people who, I, I wonder sometimes when I interact with individuals who behave as if they have this like power that you're describing, um, what, like where their fears are, because I imagine that a lot of that behavior is coming from, is, is fear driven, you know, fear of losing that sense of power. And they must feel like that's a pretty um, precarious dynamic if they're so afraid of, of losing it. Um, and I guess, you know, that depends, it changes like for, for someone who has like extreme financial wealth, maybe that's not the case, but I think of people like you were saying, you know, any of us with sort of middle of the road kind of, you know, setups, it so quickly can change. And, um, and for some people that induces, so, you know, just on a daily level, there's just so much fear about like, if things change and I lose what I have, yeah. um, or rather, maybe if, if things change and someone else gets what I have. <laughs> also, it might not so much be about like, for some people, just losing what they have. It, I think sometimes it's tied to this competitive scarcity mindset of if I don't have it, then somebody else will, and I'll be worse off. And I think that ties back into what you were describing with that message of you're just not working hard enough or you're not doing a good enough job and those perceptions that we are you know that that rhetoric that is so pumped into our culture top down you know just work harder be better do more mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i think the fear is ever present and um yeah and anxiety um mm -hmm. and i mean it's real too like it's mm -hmm. it, it is true most of us the vast majority of people are hanging on by our fingernails the ones who even have the luxury of hanging on at mm. all right. are doing so by right. their fingernails where i think most people that are within you know a certain band above and below the median income, which right now in Vermont is like $52,000, um, If you're plus or minus $20,000, well, especially if you're minus, but even mm -hmm. if you're plus $20,000 from that median income, you're probably two, maybe three paychecks away from not being able to pay a mortgage. Yeah, um, yeah. If you've even got a mortgage or pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's a funny thing. Like, you, we have something to be afraid of. And I like to think that it's not that I think that if I were to lose my job, all that income would go to some other less deserving person. Right. Although, um, it's it's just that, that you know, I, I'm aware of what happens when people, when bad things happen to people, whether it's yeah. they lose a job or there's a medical yeah. Expense, unforeseen medical expense, car breaks down. Like the, the situation you were describing, like for, for and, and I've been in this situation where we're 
living super close to the bone and we even are now but less close to the bone than I was mm-hmm. 15 years ago and like so you've got a car that is needs six eight hundred a thousand dollars worth of work um you can either try to do that but your car's gonna have other things that break or you mm-hmm. can buy a replacement car i'm gonna use the word new although we both know i'm not talking about <laughs> right. a replacement car and maybe you could afford to spend two or three thousand dollars on a replacement car but you can't get a very good car for two or three thousand dollars like mm-hmm. you are in um, a situation where you have represented with a series of bad options. Right. Like we're going to have with the presidential election. <laughs> but at least there we have a clear worse. We have bad and we have worse. Yeah. Whereas with the car situation. Yeah. It creates, you know, with the car situation, if, 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 um, like six years ago, if I were single and just relying on my income and only had access to one car, I would have had a much more stressful and sort of um, my options would have been more limited. And I would have had to, I mean, I've been in that situation with Mm -hmm. the same car. So um, (laughs) I can't say I'm sad to see this car eventually roll away. But, um, (laughs) you know, it, it like, it, 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 it's like the bottom just falls out of everything, you know, it, it affects so many pieces of like, it, it can't hold itself together. You know, the puzzle can't hold itself together if all the pieces aren't functioning. And, um, (laughs) <laughs> the election analogy though I like that that's apt. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you Sean is like what do you see where do you see possibility you know we have this time of um, being like things being so different an opportunity for people to interact with each other interact with their families differently you know things are just different do you see some possibility in that related to these topics around race or gender or power or whatever comes to mind. Yeah. I, I see so much possibility. I, I am hopeful. I am hopeful um, that this raises awareness um, because so many people have experienced difficulty, even white people, middle income, upper middle income, people, even wealthy people are getting sick with this disease, mm-hmm. um, that we hopefully can carry forward this knowledge that we are connected with each other, and that you can't feel healthy and safe and well if there's other people in your society that are um, destitute mm-hmm. and sick. Um, and you know it's like we were mentioning either earlier it's the kind of thing where we ought to be able to have enough empathy to realize that without having to undergo a global pandemic but there are limits to to how empathetic people are willing to be mm-hmm. and I hope that this is an opportunity for us to expand that empathy and do more of what we have been doing which is create these mutual aid networks and reach out and help each other and care about people who are different from us. And 
look at numbers and believe them. Like mm -hmm. this is this is affecting black people a lot more than it's affecting white people. This mm -hmm. this particular um, illness. It's affecting prisoners a lot more than it's affecting other segments of society. So I would like to carry that forward. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all these thoughts of yours. Um, I really appreciate that you chose to talk about something other than work um, because that is a big part of our lives. And, you know, it, 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 it's all couched within like what we experience outside of work. So um, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this. <laughs>